Well, hello, GBC Church family. I pray this message finds you in good health and well and in good spirits. I trust through all the social distancing that we've all been experiencing, I pray that you're finding innovative ways to reach out to each other as the body of Christ here at GBC. Please know if you're in need of anything or just need someone to talk to, please don't hesitate to reach out to Ken or I or other members of our body and know that we're here to serve you during this time. Uh, Some of you have asked about how to get your church offerings to the church. Uh, We appreciate that. Uh, You can give online securely via our church app if you like. Or you can simply mail in your offering to Grace Bible Church 2225 Euclid Avenue, Redwood City, California, 94061. Please be sure to put on the envelope, Attention Ivor. Attention Ivor, I-V-O-R. He's our church treasurer, and uh, we'll be sure that uh, he gets gets your offering in that way. And we want to thank those of you who've been so faithful to continue your giving uh, either on the app or through the mail. We appreciate that. Uh, well, to start off our worship time this morning, I want to ask one of our elders, Ken Saragusa, to come and uh, read God's Word for us here this morning. Well, good morning, church family, and welcome to our second Sunday of broadcasting without meeting. Hope you're all doing well. I know this week has been a trying week for most people. And for some of us, it's been more difficult than for others. But I pray that God has gotten you through this week and given you his grace in a way that you haven't received before. But through this difficult time, you're able to manage through it. Continue to keep those in prayer that uh, you know of, especially the older parts of our congregation. And those who are sick, uh, continue to keep Theo and his family in prayer as they navigate through their trials in India, as well as the orphanage and other missionaries around the world that we support during this time. This morning's reading is going to be from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you grab your Bibles, I'll give you a little moment here as we begin the Lord's Day. 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you not ready for it, and even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. 
Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We are so grateful that we have this truth. Thank you, Father, for encouraging us to let us know that any foundation that we build on has to be in you. And that foundation will never crumble, will never fall. Even during difficult times, Lord, that foundation will stand strong. So thank you for keeping us strong, Lord, during this time. We ask you to bless our time as Steve brings the message this morning, that we would be encouraged and uplifted in our faith. And that, Lord, through the day, through the weeks and time to come, may you use us, Lord, to offer those hope of the foundation that's built upon rock and upon the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate that. You know, we live in a world where everybody wants everything right now. I've seen folks stand in front of the microwave, (laughs) that being me, and complain, why does it take so long? We drive through drive throughs and wonder, why isn't the line moving quicker? All things disposable and the, the cell phone availability, um, and never have we had so much to complain about and so little time to enjoy life. Too often, I think, we sacrifice quality for convenience. We say we don't have time. We say we can't just wait. We have to, have to embrace a, a just-do-it philosophy. And more and more people are sacrificing enduring truth for quick fixes. But if we want to ensure that we can weather life's greatest storms, no matter how strong the winds or how torrential the rains, 
or how inconvenient and even deadly a virus may be, we need to step out of the quicksand of convenience and step onto the bedrock of lasting truth. Storms are inevitable part of your life. It's simply a reality that our, our lives will experience a train wreck or two. You may be on the brink of a, a storm or you find yourself like the rest of us in the middle of the storm as most of the world does at this time. And during those times, we have a, sometimes we're tempted to jump to a quick fix solution. We see that in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic around the world. We can see people growing weary and impatient with the process of fixing this health problem caused by this virus. Everyone is looking for a quick fix solution. Our government is taking note of certain fundamental basic issues that are arising that no one would have ever even imagined two months, three months ago. But they're taking note and they're learning, so this may not happen again. Or if it does, at least they may be a little well off prepared for it. We see consequences of such short-sighted thinking all around us because we're in the middle of a worldwide crisis. We see it in our health system. We see it in our monetary system. We see it in the reaction of the stock market. And when everything seems to be in flux around us, I want to take some time to show you the importance of building upon the fundamentals, of building upon a solid foundation for life, a rock-solid life. You remember Jesus as a carpenter and the builder of mankind. He provides clear instruction on how you and how I can build a rock-solid foundation for our lives. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, Jesus talks about a man who builds his house on rock and another who builds his house on the sand. And in this story, Jesus gives us three key building blocks for a foundation that will last. Let me read our text for us, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, and then I'll pray, and then we can move on with the message. Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Father, we pray today as we look into your word Lord, we grieve that we're not gathered together as the body of Christ physically, but we know we can be gathered together spiritually. Fellowship and worship, worshiping you is not about a building. 
It's about having our hearts right with you. And so we pray this morning that you would lead us and guide us through our time of study in your word. I pray that this would be very applicable to our lives during this time. As we look at these key building blocks for a foundation that will last. When everything around us seems in flux, changing. But Lord, we trust in you as our God and creator to do that work in our hearts. And so we pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, there's something to be said about the importance of basics. Uh, Jesus focused on the fundamentals of the faith. We have a class we teach, the fundamentals of the faith. We need to forget about all the complexities, forget about the enigmas, forget about the theological twisters (laughs) that all too many of today's teachers focus on. The faith that that Jesus taught was profound enough. It was profound enough, beloved, to set the religious establishment of his day on edge. Yet, it was so simple that even a child could understand it. It's time that we got back to the basics of our faith. I'm reminded in an illustration of John Wooden. The man who practiced the basics. If you know anything about sports, you know who John Wooden was. He was a great builder of basketball players and teams. And he led UCLA Bruins, the the basketball team, to championship after championship. Now, he was an old school kind of coach. (laughs) He did all kind of things that his players considered very unusual And he had all kinds of policies that his players thought were rather odd and antiquated. But you know what? He got results. He won. Why did he win? Because John Wooden taught the basics. Building a solid foundation for an unprecedented string of victories with his basketball team. See, the game for Wooden was always about the fundamentals. As many of America's finest high school players would go and play college ball under the renowned coach, John Wooden at UCLA, it was from Wooden that these players like Lou Alcindor, who later became known as the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, would learn the basics of the game. At every season opening practice, Wooden would gather the players together that he had recruited from America's best high school basketball teams, and he instructed them. He instructed them on how to put on their socks. (laughs) Imagine what these young men must have been thinking. I've come all the way to UCLA to learn how to put my socks on? This is the coach of the best basketball program in the country? And Wooden would make very clear to them, yes, learning to put on their socks was precisely what he was going to teach them before they ever bounced a basketball, before they ever held a drill. Speaking rhetorically, Wooden would ask, you know why you got to put your socks on in the right way? Because if you don't put your socks on properly, there will be wrinkles in your socks, And wrinkles cause blisters, and you can't play basketball with blisters on your feet. 
And so Wooden would teach his players step by step how to put their socks on. First the right foot, then the left foot. Here are physically grown men at the top of their game training to put on their socks one foot at a time. That's teaching the basics. By emphasizing the fundamentals, wouldn't build a foundation to last the season. And for many of these youthful stars throughout their professional careers and their personal lives, he showed how much he cared for them by teaching them old school discipline. He cared nothing for the unnecessary or the frivolous. Showboating for him by dribbling behind your back or between your legs to show up your opponent was not part of the game. Among other things that Wooden demanded of his players was that they have short hair and be clean-shaven. You say, why was that? Because long hair would stay wet longer after a shower, and it would heighten, heighten their chances to catch a cold and possibly prevent them from playing in the next game. See, during an era when long hair and beards were the in thing, especially in Southern California, this particular policy drove some of his players crazy. The story goes that after a summer break, future NBA great Bill Walton returned to UCLA sporting a lengthy beard and long hair. (laughs) Well, John Wooden, the coach, took one look and said, Bill, you're going to have to cut that. And Walton, in turn, responded, no, you have no right to tell me that. I have a right to wear my hair like this. Wooden paused before responding, and then he asked Walton, do you believe that, Bill? Do you believe it very strongly? And Walton said, I absolutely do. Well, said Wooden, I like men that believe in things very strongly and that will stand up for what they believe and stay with it. And then Wooden added this to the conversation. It's been nice having you on our team, Bill. We're going to miss you. Well, guess what? Bill Walton cut his hair and his beard. And he learned how to play ball like few men before or since. And he stayed in touch with Coach Wooden every week just to tell him how much he loved him, cared for him. See, Wooten was much more a coach to his players. More than that, he became a a father figure. Of the 188 so players that he coached during his career, he claimed to know the whereabouts of about 172. That's pretty good. He was committed to the basics. He taught his players the importance of building a solid foundation for success in basketball and in life. See, there's a great opportunity today to complicate our lives and to miss out on the basics. Yet it's my belief that Jesus wants us to focus on the basics as we seek to build our lives on the rock-solid truth revealed to us in his life in God's word. Well, I want to talk to you about building a strong foundation Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is probably the most significant sermon ever delivered. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. 
it's a masterful exposition of the law, a potent assault on religious legalism. It's really a clarion call to true faith and salvation. Those who heard Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount were amazed with its relevance. In fact, the crowd's response to this incredible teaching is recorded in the last sentence of Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. See, the scribes quoted others to establish their own authority. But Jesus was his own authority. He taught with such force and clarity that it was obvious to all that he was the source of truth as he taught. Among the many things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is the absolute need to build our faith on a solid foundation. He offers us a simple yet powerful illustration of two home builders to drive home his point. We see that in the text. Chapter 7, verse 24. The houses here in this illustration represent religious life. And the wind and the rain are illustrations of divine judgment. Two men, two houses, one founded on rock, the other built on sand. Both were buffeted by wind, pelted with rain. The house with a solid foundation remained standing. The other collapsed. Jesus uses this easy-to-understand yet profoundly vivid picture to direct us to building the right foundation for our own lives. See, you can have two houses, but the one with the strongest foundation will outlast the one with the weaker foundation. Likewise, you can have two people, two churchgoers, if you will. They dress similarly, live in the same neighborhood, speak the same language, carry the same Bible, and maybe even sing the same hymns with the same enthusiasm. Yet there's a distinct difference between them. One actually hears and internalizes the good news of Jesus. The other, if he or she hears the word, fails to acknowledge it in their life. The former is building a life founded on the rock, that is the word. The latter leads a life as insubstantial as sand, pursuing self-indulgent and fleeting existence. I mean, when you ask yourself, amid the tempests and trials of this life, which will fare better? And when we enter that ultimate of storms, which of these two lives will be wanting? The life whose foundation is fixed in God, the rock of ages, or the life without it, without a foundation? Well, Jesus gives us three key building blocks for a foundation that will last. Three key building blocks for a foundation that will last. First of all, building block number one is the reality in Jesus Christ. The reality in Jesus Christ. See, building your life 
on the rock is essential now and forever if we're going to build on a foundation that will last. Well, how do you do that? Well, the first building block is the reality that is Jesus Christ. Some texts here in this verse, verse 22, or in in verse 24, it says, Therefore, and Jesus uses that to begin this illustration of a man who builds his house on the rock, and he really signals the summation of the points that he's just made. And key among those points to the people who will stand before God on judgment and assume that their past actions alone will be sufficient for entry into heaven. He points this out in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, his choice of phrases here is interesting. To know someone in the biblical sense suggests an intimacy, even akin to marriage. So Jesus is telling us that access to heaven hinges upon us really knowing him through a deep personal relationship that in turn makes him know us. See, it's one thing, beloved, to say, I know Jesus I know Jesus. It's another thing to say that he knows you. And the latter is much more crucial because we live in a celebrity-crazed time. I mean, fans assume that they know their favorite stars. They talk as if they're, they're friends. People go crazy over what these famous people wear and what they eat and what they say and what they do. And many write to their favorite celebrity. They write letters. Well, you may know a lot of superficial things about your star. But guess what? That star doesn't have a clue who you are. Don't expect a return mail or email. You're just another crazed fan. See, in the same way, there are a lot of people who claim to know Jesus. Simply knowing his name, however without committing to a deep personal relationship with him doesn't mean that he knows your name. A person whose life displays the reality of Jesus and the Christian faith as preached and proclaimed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is far different from the Christianity we see preached and proclaimed in some churches today. Jesus preaches a personal relationship that is far deeper than the rhetoric often heard in some so-called Christian circles today. See, he's describing a relationship and a fellowship with God that is life-changing. Those of you who have committed your life to Christ know what I'm speaking about. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who profess Jesus in their lives through surveys and even polls but they lead lives barely different from people who don't profess Christ. These self-professed Christians do not reveal their faith at their workplaces or in their marriages or in their colleges because it's not real. 
And rest assured, Jesus does not allow for superficiality. He won't let you get away with it. It's like the guy I heard who was stuck in traffic behind a lady. She was talking on her cell phone. And he was one of these self-professed Christians. You could tell by all the Christian bumper stickers he had on his car. Well, this man became growingly irritated. He became incensed as this woman in front of him sat through two lights because she was distracted by her conversations on her cell phone. Her cell phone. And he began raising his hands, shaking fists, honking his horn, turning the air blue with profanity at such a volume that you could hear it outside of the car. And when he could take no more, he accelerated around the woman's vehicle only to be pulled over by a police officer who had observed his antics. The officer insisted that the man get out of his vehicle and sit in the officer's cruiser. Stunned, the man explained, what are you talking about? All I tried to do was get through this traffic. You can't pull me over for yelling at that woman. And as the officer checked out the man's license and registration, the officer gave the man a real good looking over. When the officer released him, the irritated man assured the officer that he never heard the end of this, that he had been pulled over for no reason whatsoever. To which the officer responded, Sir, I'll tell you why I pulled you over. When I saw your car and all the Christian bumper stickers on your bumper, and then I looked at the way you were acting, I thought, surely you must have stolen this car. (laughs) See, a person's attitudes and actions do indeed speak louder than a person's words. As Matthew 7.20 says, thus you will recognize them by their what? By their fruits. The fruit of our lives yield is what others will judge us by. John also talks about the basic truth of knowing Jesus. In fact, in 1 John 4.15, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So my first question to you, amidst this COVID-19 crisis we're facing, have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because I want to tell you, if you haven't, you're not a Christian. You can invoke the name of God all you like, but it is impossible to be saved without confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord by personally And publicly, identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. You must believe in who he is. He's the Savior. He's the sinless and spotless Lamb of God. But you also must believe in what he did for you. That he died on the cross for your sins. That he rose again on the third day. Victorious over sin and death. But only if we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, will we be saved? Knowing Jesus as your Savior is the first building block 
of establishing a firm foundation for the storms of life. It's in that reality that is the basic truth to a rock-solid life. Building block number two, the stability in Jesus Christ. See, if the first building block of the foundation is knowing the reality of Jesus Christ, the second building block is relying on the stability that we find in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What that means literally, is that a real confessing Christian does not sin? Is that what that means? We know we sin. We all sin probably daily in a myriad of ways. I mean, I wish I could tell you I never sin, but I do. Because I know my nature. I know the temptations I face. And yes, we all sin. But see, there's a difference between the true child of God who is building his life upon the rock and the person who isn't. The difference is simply this. The person whose life has been or is being changed by the power of Jesus Christ does not continue to live and practice and embrace and run to sin. There's a discomfort all of a sudden when we sin. And it's caused by the conviction of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Someone once said that when we are saved, Jesus fixes it not so that we can't sin anymore, but that we can't enjoy it anymore. There's a grain of truth in that thought. When we are saved, we, we gain conviction and a check is placed upon us, like a warning light that comes up on the dashboard of your car when we cross that sin line. The Holy Spirit lives within us and we can't continue to do that which we, we used to. Why? Because we're transformed. We're changed by the power of Jesus Christ. We're founded on the bedrock of Christianity. By contrast, a, a person who blatantly per, persists in sin is building a life on the sand. That person does not acknowledge the reality of Jesus and has no foundation on the rock of a substantial relationship with and in Christ. Jesus is to be the foundation of our lives. In fact, the Bible, and we're going to look at this possibly in the coming weeks, the Bible often refers to Christ as the chief cornerstone, that indispensable, that fundamental component to build our foundation upon. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, there's no rationalizing here. There's no other way than to found your life upon the rock. Only in this way 
can Jesus change our lives? And not only that, but our belief and our confession in Jesus will result in Jesus changing how we relate to other people. What affects us vertically will also affect us horizontally. People that we hated, all of a sudden we love. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Simply put, that means that when you're born again, you become a new person in Christ, and you join and become a member of a family. And all of the members of that family you're called to love. Once Jesus Christ enters your life, you'll discover a love for those you once hated. And you'll embrace other believers as your brothers and sisters in Christ. It saddens me a lot when I hear people say that they're, they get their spiritual nourishment solely through a radio program or a church app or the internet somehow. Now, unfortunately, for this period of time in our country, we, we thank the Lord for these things because it allows us to communicate even though we can't meet together personally. But I pray that in this time of isolation, this time of personal social distancing, it causes all of us to pause. It causes all of us to reflect. It causes all of us to realize how much we have taken for granted the times when we have gathered together personally as the church. See, church is so much more than just sermons and Bible study. That's important. Don't get me wrong. That's very important. But it's also fellowship. It's fellowship among the members of a family who believe in and are encouraged and blessed and strengthened by one another. See, the church is a place where we can serve as the salt and light of our culture. We can serve in our community. It's a place to share Christ, a place where we function as a body. We each have spiritual gifts that we are called to share with one another for the edification of the the church. And that's why God created the church. See, if you love Jesus, you'll love the people who love Jesus. And you will long to be with them. You'll you'll, You'll long to be with his church. Just one more fruit by which you can distinguish between a real Christian and a churchgoer. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, John says this, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Now ask yourself, ask yourself this question. Do I live in obedience to the word of God? See, we must keep God's word. We're called to abide in God's word. We're called to love God's word. To live out God's word. Founding your life upon the rock is to build your life upon the word of God. As it is with loving people once whom you may have disliked before you became a Christian. Becoming a Christian enables you to understand a book that once made no sense to you. What gave you no sustenance before all of a sudden becomes living bread. You want to be with, you want to be in the Word of God. You develop an appetite for spiritual truth in your life because you know Jesus, and the more 
You know, the more you grow in him, concerned about many professing Christians in America who think the Christian life is solely some religious experience, all the emotions. It's not. It's rather more about building foundations, about a trust of God's word. When you stop and you ask the average high school student just a simple question about fundamental truths and personalities or events in the Bible, they fail usually miserably. Why? Because they're not taught these things. Many are growing up and merely adopting the religion of their parents instead of having a personal relationship with Christ and growing personally in their word. See, if you're going to weather the storms of life, you need a foundation upon which to build. The point is that if you love Jesus and you know him, you're going to love his word, you're going to love his people, and you're going to want to know its truth. That's why Christ said that those who build their houses on the rock are the ones who hear his word and keep his commandments and do what he says we should do. To build your life on a foundation that will last means building on the reality of Jesus. And that, in turn, implies building on the stability of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you're a builder, if you have any construction background at all, you know the importance of laying sturdy, solid foundations. And the bigger the building, the sturdier the base must be. I mean, usually it's months that are spent digging and laying out iron and steel and pouring concrete before the actual structure ever even breaks ground level. A good foundation is essential for buildings, but also for lives. Why? Because the storms will come. And they will come literally out of nowhere. Problems and tragedies can arise unexpectedly, even in the happiest of lives. None of us thought two months ago that we would be in the situation we're in as a country, as a world, with this virus, with this pandemic. The storms that Jesus teaches us about can take many forms. They can be the storm of thunderous judgment in the future or the periodic and temporary storms that arise in all of our lives. They can be financial. They can be relational, family. They can be marital. They can even involve the trial of unanswered prayer. But you know what? A faith that can't withstand the test thrown at it by life is a faith that can't be trusted. So take the storms in stride. Because a good storm will demonstrate the reality and the stability of your faith's foundation. A lot of people recently have said, you know, Pastor, we're in the, the midst of this tremendous storm, and it's hard. Somehow, I don't know how, we're still standing. We're still trusting in God, and there's a peace in his presence in the midst of the storm. And you couldn't have it without that foundation that's built on Christ. The fact is that peoples whose lives lack a foundation built upon the rock of the reality of Jesus simply don't survive because there's no stability if you build your life around toys and trinkets and selfish pursuits, around anything other than Jesus Christ, 
One of these days, a storm is going to strike and literally tear your life apart. We see it all around us. You have nothing to stand on if you're not standing on Jesus Christ. You'll have no strength of support. You'll have no stability in your life. I'm reminded of that hymn, My Hope is Built. It was written by Edward Mote. He was a United Methodist individual. He lived back in the 1700s, early 1797 to 1874. And he grew up, interestingly, without religious training. And his parents actually owned a bar, they owned a pub. And he was apprenticed at a young age by his parents. They sent him out to a cabinet maker. But he found faith when he heard the preaching of John Hyatt at the age of 15 in London. He established a successful cabinet-making enterprise, and he became a Baptist minister in 1852 at the age of 55. He ministered for 21 years at Strict Baptist Church. Boy, that sounds like a name, doesn't it? Strict Baptist Church in Horsham, Sussex. And singing hymns was of great interest to him. The master cabinet maker became a prolific hymn writer. He composed more than 100 hymns. And he published his hymns with selections by others in 1836 in a hymnal called Hymns of Praise, a new selection of gospel hymns. Hymnologists note that this is the first time the now common term gospel hymn appears. Hymnologists tell us that the hymn was probably written in 1834, and, and the original title of the hymn actually was Jesus My All in All. One recalls when he wrote it, he says, One morning it came into my mind as I went to labor to write a hymn on the gracious experience of a Christian. As I went to work, I had the chorus, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. In the day I had four verses complete and wrote them off. On the Sabbath following by the fireside, composed the last two verses. The next Sunday, Moat visited the home of some fellow church members where the wife was very ill. And the husband informed Moat that it was their custom on the Lord's Day to sing a hymn to read Bible and to read the Bible and to pray together. And Moat produced the new hymn from his pocket, and they sang the solid rock together for the first time. The foot-stomping tune was composed by American gospel song composer William Bradbury for Moat's text in 1863. See, we all need to take heed what that song proclaims. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. See, when we confront the seasons and the storms of life, we must stand on a rock that is unmovable. That rock is Jesus Christ. Well, the third building block here that I see is eternity in Jesus Christ. The eternity in Jesus Christ. The final building block of faith that lasts is the eternity that is in Jesus Christ. 
It's a life that lasts forever beyond the physical life. Building a solid foundation on the rock of Christ in our physical lifetime leads ultimately to an eternal future with God. Do you know you were built to live forever? You were created to live forever? God has set eternity in our hearts. Life is brief. It's described for us in James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go out to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Verse 14. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're going to spend far more time in eternity than we do on this earth, beloved. That's why Jesus instructs us against the foolishness of building a life for here and now without the thought of eternity. The Christian lives for eternity. And that priority is life-changing. Matthew chapter 6, verses 33, it tells us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, this aim alters our values. It revises the way we live because we recognize that the here and now isn't all there is. We live knowing that we have such a terrific future. And we put our hope in a promise with God in heaven that defies all comprehension. Paul even alludes to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We can only imagine what awaits for us from the glimpses of Scripture given gives us this, this great glory to look forward to. And it's in these glimpses of our prize that keep us steadfastly anchored to the rock that is our foundation. The Bible tells us that in heaven we will rejoice, that we will revel in the presence of God. See, that's what makes heaven heaven. In heaven, we're going to be reunited with family and friends, all the loved ones who have gone before us in Christ. In heaven, we're going to be restored. We're going to be renewed. We're going to be completed in Christ Jesus. We're going to have immortal, glorified bodies. We're going to be able to serve him day and night. We're not going to be sitting on some cloud playing a harp and just wasting away eternity. We're going to be serving God forever. We're going to be able to walk with him always. That's why we live for eternity. Because we know that death isn't the end. Death is merely for the Christian a doorway. The exit from this life and the entrance to eternity. And knowing this, we must too that there are eternal consequences to everything we do here and now. I mean, we have so many choices in life. But guess what? For the afterlife, you only get two. 
It's either heaven or hell. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, who is love incarnate, when he ends the Sermon on the Mount, he ends it with a good, healthy, holy dose of fear. He talks about judgment. He talks about the broad road that leads to destruction. He tells us that while we have many choices, there are consequences for every choice. That the decision we make today determines our destiny forever. If you choose to live without God in life, you choose to live without God in the afterlife. See, that's why Jesus came to earth. He arrived to save us from making the wrong choice, from being judged and found wanting and delivered to hell and its eternal death. He came to offer eternal life instead for, to all who believe, to all who build a life to last on the bedrock of his reality. He came to show us that life, the life that we now know is but a preparation for eternity to come. Thinking of Amos, in Amos chapter 4, verse 12, he says, prepare, the prophet says, prepare to meet your God. To build your life on a firm foundation means building for eternity on a foundation of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, do you know Christ? Or do you just know his name? Maybe you know a few things about Christ. The more important question is, does Christ know you? Are you living as a child of God? Do you exhibit the character of his kingdom? Do you know Christ? Is Jesus Christ living in you? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Very probing questions for troubled times. Here in the Bay Area, we have the great Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, it's beautiful. I've been down there many times and took pictures of it and walked across it. But it is absolutely essential to meeting the transportation needs of the Bay Area. So much so that it is one of the first things in America to receive increased attention when the terrorist alert level escalated. They actually had guards down at the bridge. Well, did you know that the Golden Gate Bridge is built directly over the San Andreas Fault? <laughs> That's comforting, huh? During an earthquake, the bridge is built to sway some 20 feet at the center of its one-mile span. Think about that, 20 feet. The secret to the bridge's durability, however, lies in more than just its flexibility. By design, every part of the bridge, its concrete roadway, its steel railings, its cross beams, its integrated cables, from one welded joint to the other, up through the vast cable system, to two great towers and two great land anchor piers. 
The towers, which bear most of the weight, are deeply embedded in the rock foundation far below the sea. The Golden Gate Bridge stands today because it stands on a solid foundation, bedrock. Our lives are even greater, are even a greater engineering marvel than the Golden Gate Bridge. Think about it. We are God's workmanship, beloved. And you know what? When you follow these three simple building blocks, you will construct your life upon a foundation that will last. We are all created to, to live forever. And your physical life is but a vapor here on this earth. I pray that as you ponder these thoughts and these keys, these principles in your heart. If you want a life built upon a firm foundation, then build upon the stability of Jesus Christ. Build upon the reality of Jesus Christ. Build upon the eternity that is just around the corner, but it's founded in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ today, I pray that today will be the day you'll cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Turn from your sin to the Savior. You do that with conviction. You do that with humility. That's a prayer that God will answer. He'll transform you. He'll forgive your sin. And he'll make you into the person that he desires you to be, one that can worship him in spirit and truth and understand his word. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to reside within you, to help you with your newfound Christian life. Nothing like it in the world. I pray that as we continue to pray for those in leadership over us, at the local level, even at the presidential level, our federal government as they try to figure out how to fix this virus and the economy and everything that's going on around us. I pray that this is all, we'll understand this is all temporary. This is all temporary. And that our faith needs to be founded firmly. Our faith needs to be founded firmly in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Father, we thank you for the, your, your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remind ourselves daily that this life is not going to last forever physically here on this earth. But we'll all last for all eternity in one of two places, either heaven or hell. And for those going to heaven, it's because of their faith, their trust in Christ. They're turning from sin to the Savior. Lord, we pray that every heart that hears this message, will ponder in their own heart. Do they just know some things about Jesus, or does Jesus know them? Are they for sure that their sins have been forgiven, that they've been granted repentance, and that they've turned from their sin to a Savior? I pray that that's the truth. But Lord, as that verse said, many will stand before you on that day, saying, Lord, Lord. And your response will be, I never knew you. Father, we pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us into your image. We ask, Lord, that you would do your work of refinement through the trials that we now find ourselves in. I pray that we would use our time wisely, that we would spend much more time in prayer and in your word and in fretting over 
the cares of this life. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.